tits hurt. No. Just because they're so big and heavy. I'm Hope. I'm Jackie. And this is a podcast where we read stuff about art and fashion. It could be anywhere from high academic theory, like today's episode, or it could be just absolute garbage trash that we read online. Yeah. We have no tastes, but wait, does that mean we have camp tastes? You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> if, that's a reference from for your big brains over there from the last few episodes. Yeah. If you like the podcast, you should rate it five stars. You know, even if you don't like it, if you think someone else would like it, if you rate it five stars, they're more likely to find it and we're less likely to quit. And while we're on the subject of feedback, I'm just letting you know that half an hour into the episode, we had some sound difficulties that last about half an hour. So just hang tight. It'll be over soon. Yeah, I do really want to communicate with you guys and would love to hear you, you know, any kind of outreach we love. Uh, I shouldn't say any kind. Some good old-fashioned, hey, I really love your podcast, or good old-fashioned, hey, this is a story. What do you think of this? We love it. We love it. So do it. Also, please, please, please give us five stars, please. Um, And with that, Jackie... What is trending for you? I did think about this, but give me a second of what I had thought about. Oh, consuming tiny joys. Tiny joys. I have decided I can't, I'm broke, but I, I, I had a little bit enough money to like spend on things that could make me feel adorned in some capacity, you know? So like, I bought I bought Lashify, which like is instead of like getting my eyelashes done all the time, um, I could wear Lashify and it's like lashes that last up to like three to five days, which is what I want. I want the laziness of uh, like someone a lash tech. Like, yeah. but I also was like I can't afford to keep on going to this person even though I love them. So what can I do? So I did that. I also recently got. Um, extensions which i sent pictures to you on which i'm like do not know how to do yet like it sounds hard i'd love to see the process yeah i'm super excited i'm gonna like i'm stumbling my way into it it was already uncomfortable i was like i gotta figure this out because i want to do braids with them i want to do like hair wraps around with it you know what i mean like i want to do weird shit with it and i'm really excited about that because it's just like another piece of my adornment that was pretty affordable it was real human hair i, I don't don't ruin it for me because i probably already know it's probably sourced poorly and i i would it makes you real sad i feel like the idea of like hair human hair being sourced poorly i don't even know how that looks like it sounds abusive in a way that my teenage self would be horrified by yeah like if you've ever cried after getting a haircut where they cut too much hair off it's like you understand the trauma that could be exactly yeah and i feel like things stick in hair so i don't want my hair to be cursed anyway right. <laughs> yeah it's like when you cook potatoes and your hair really smells like potatoes afterwards it's like <laughs> that but worse <laughs> exactly i don't want it to be full of secrets and, and lies and trauma i want it to be full of love anyways um and i also got a gel set Ooh, nice. and I, you can see i did my nails 
kind of terribly. They're bad. That was like, and I put them right on my nails, but I, I clean, I had the machine where I could like basically sandpaper down my fingernails and like buff them and like, oh, so satisfying. And now I'm like, am I want to be the nail tech in our group of friends. Yeah. Like I want to be like, bitch, you're getting a manicure right now just because I said so. I don't know. Like I bought like tiny gel extensions. I think the thing that holds us back, at least hold has held me back, is the length of the nails because I've had long nails that aren't even that long, but I couldn't open doors. I couldn't like text people. So I bought the gel tips that are like square, blunt, and very short so I could experiment on myself and then maybe convince my friends like you. Yeah, I would love if you did my nails. At this point, like when people have nails that are long naturally, it like freaks me out. I'm like, yeah, me too. only fake long nails. I understand. Yeah, well, people that have naturally long nails, I'm like, girl, let me do your nails. Like that's, you can, like this is nubs. I just think my nubs should be painted because it makes it look prettier. Like, so anyways, and I also got like, I was like Googling, you know, nail inspiration and I bought like a tiny nail brush that I can paint with. So I'm about to get, I don't know, maybe I won't. But I, I think it's an exciting process for me to like, adorn myself and like express myself in art and not in a way that I feel like I have to be pressured or be good at it but it's just like something that I can show off but also like not I'm not gonna like consume myself with the product you know yeah oh I love that and you can adorn your friends too exactly and the process of the manicure part was like it felt very loving and like like I was nurturing myself like cleaning my nails because I I just like I'm already hyper fixated on my nails anyways but it was like I was given the tools to actually feel like clean up my nails in a way that I felt was what I've always wanted and I was like well there's just so much pleasure to it um like kind of like cleaning your feet you know what I mean like I'm so bad about like nail care and I have one of the steps for me to get better at nail care is wearing my mouth guard because um I buy my nails at night so that's been like a first step uh-huh. and I'm also trying to like keep them cleaner and it does feel really good. Yeah. And then I struggle with it too. I tear off my nails all the time. I have like thin nails and I can just tear them. I've hanged nails. They're gross. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. that's why I'm trying to like, I want the nubs to like be, I want the ends of me to be pretty, you know, like <laughs> yeah. my face, the head, you know, like the, the fingernails, the feet, yeah. the feet. What about tits? Those kind of tips? They're kind of like ex- kind of, extremities. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, done. Yeah, check. <laughs> They're perfect. <laughs> so, but th- that's what's going on with me is um, affordable adornment. What's trending with you, Hope? Well, okay, what's trending for me is just vibing with my girls <laughs> and also celebrating heterosexual accomplishments. <laughs> um, I went to a wedding last weekend. It was some friends of Brian and it was really nice. It was like out on one of the islands over here in Washington. Did you know Washington has islands? Yeah, we stayed in these little tiny homes, right? Like it was like this, it was actually funny because we read the guest book and it was this husband and wife that were like, we sold our home and then bought this land. It was just a pipe dream. And like uh, some arguments later, we came up to this and it was like, they're trying to make it a cute story. And I'm like, it's not cute that you were able to just buy a bunch of property and put tiny homes on it. Like it's not... I get that it was like really special for you. Yeah. But there's nothing interesting to me about the story. Yeah, there literally isn't. You bought property and then you built tiny homes to make money. To make a wedding. And it is like a, it's like a nice situation for a wedding because those of us who were in the wedding party, which I wasn't, Brian was, which meant he had to get up at at 730 on Saturday to play golf, which 
I was like, thank God that that's not me. <laughs> I but, don't think, I mean, I shouldn't generalize, but I don't know. Most women aren't going to ask you to wake up at 7 a.m. to play golf. Yeah, I was surprised that the, these guys did that. But anywho, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of Brian's friends and I like a lot of them. Most of them, I would say, in fact. But I was just vibing out with everyone's girlfriends there. It was like, it just, you know, I feel like there's different, at different points in my life, I feel better or worse at connecting with people. And I, right. I it feels really good when you feel, when it's like you can right. do it and yeah. when it's like easier and you just are like genuinely enjoying having conversations versus being like, I'm just having to try really hard right now. Right. So that was really fun. And then I just got back today from a really quick, like, basically 24-hour trip to Sacramento for my friend's baby shower. She didn't have a wedding, so this is, like, the big event where everyone came. And she has, like, a ton of friends that she's, like, made throughout life, you know, as one does. And she's, like, really into one-on-one time. So it's, like, all of these friends that she had just known one-on-one. And I've met some of them before. And so... That was really fun to catch up with them, but I was meeting a lot of them for the first time and we just fucking vibed. And it's like, you know, people of different ages, like one of the women I was talking to was like 50, which I didn't know because she is black and like looks 40. Which is the stereotype that I think is true. <laughs> yeah. Um, white people have the worst skin. We age the worst. Well, yeah, because I think the level of melonia, whatever it's called, melatonin, what is it called? Melatonin? Melatonin. No. Yeah. No, it's like the... Melanin. Mel- melanin. It's level of melanin that we have, you know? And But then what about Asian people? Because they age better than us too. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know what... what uh, I don't know. I don't know. Why do white people... Yeah. Why are we white? Why... What's going on here? We're cracking at the seams. Yeah. We don't... We're not using like moisturizer. I was using like alcohol to solve my zits and no one told me about moisturizer until I was like 25. I was like peeling. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, I kind of doubt it's just a skincare thing, but yeah, I don't know. Either way, we were like, we were talking about fast food. This one woman asked me my, what my go-to McDonald's order was. And I was like, I'm, it was just, my friend loves fast food, the one who's pregnant. So it was like, we were all just like, oh my God, we can all just tell that we're this person's friends. And at one point, the three of us who I was talking to realized we were all Virgos. And then, and then like, they were like talking about how like they're the go-to people at work and they just get so much shit done. And it's like, I relate to that to some degree, but I think I'm lazier than what people think of as a Virgos as, or it's like, I'm only motivated when it's like my own personal project. <laughs> if it's not fun, I don't give a shit. Like yeah. just try to get me to open mail. I fucking dare you. It's I like, I hate it. Same. People are like, wow, you're really organized. And I'm like, I mean, no, I'm not. It's like organizing is like a, it's like an indulgent activity that I do when I feel delighted to do it. Exactly. And I think that's because we might have undiagnosed ADD. Oh, I've been diagnosed. You got diagnosed? Congrats. Well, I was diagnosed as a child. Oh. After I was in therapy when I was like 12, 13, my therapist was like, I think she just has ADD. And my parents- Passively? My da- was like, mm, it's a possibility. No, they like gave me a test of like what- Wow. To, like, to figure out what was wrong with me. And my parents were like, Hmm. So is she going to kill herself or no? (laughs) Like they didn't do anything about it, which is fine. Like I don't wish my parents had given me drugs at a young age. Yeah. Anywho. So I'm just, I'm just vibing out with my gals and having a great time. I realize sometimes on this podcast, we we do talk too much about women being better and not inclusive to like the other. Yeah. I mean, trans men too can be really fucking annoying. We should be inclusive about it. (laughs) Cis men and trans men. Um, no. I mean, I just feel like anybody that's born into the cis, white, male, 
hetero don't have to really process and think about the world because it it benefits them in so many ways that it's infuriating. There's this TikTok of a trans man being like, now that I can pass, now that I'm passing, men will will make snide remarks to me about like their wives or girlfriends. And he and he's like, you think I'm on your side? Like I'm in the bathroom telling her to leave you. (laughs) And I was like, yes. Um, Yeah. But I mean, there is a certain vibe with other femmes just in general. I want to be around femme bitches. Yeah, and today's article gets into some of that. Oh, this is us going into it. And yes. that's what we call a transition. <laughs> um, I don't know how this article ended up on our list. We have like a list of things that we want to read. I don't know how it did either. I mean, I definitely put it there, but I don't know what, when or why or where I got it from. But super glad that we decided to read it this week because it really like just touches on so many things we've been talking about. It's called Power Play and Performance in Harajuku. It was written by Amelia Groom. It was published in 2011. Amelia Groom is a Berlin-based writer and art historian. Back in 2011, when this was written, she was at University of Sydney studying like art history and theory, getting her PhD. But since then, she's done a lot of different stuff. One project I wanted to tell you about, Jackie, is... So her latest book is called Beverly Buchanan, Marsh Ruins, about an artist named Beverly Buchanan who did these three sculptural mounds on the edge of a tidal marsh in Brunswick, Georgia. They're these like large amorphous forms made by layering concrete and tabby. Tabby is a concrete made from lime, water, sand, oyster shells, and ash Mm. that was used throughout the American South to construct shacks for enslaved people. So she's a black artist and it was like about uh, like the existence of these people there and like... right. Speaking poetically through these whatever forms. Wow. I love that because like she does a lot of talk about in this article that we're going to be talking about, about being seen. And that's just a piece of like of slaves being essentially seen. Yeah. And the pieces are meant to like erode and change over time. It's like, I mean, it's land art, which is like something that we learned about in school and is like. I feel like I deal with land art because it is kind of sometimes not good. But like, I don't know. I think it's under it's underrated. I think people, it's just like land art's really fucking cool. Well, and it's like so much of land art happens in the desert because you have just like a huge open palette essentially. And I think it's really interesting to have it be in a marsh where it is wet and like things are going to erode and change. And so you have to approach a project, a land art project differently. That's Lulu in the background begging it, begging to come hang out. Is it time for to feed her? No, I just fed her. She just wants to participate. Did you look up Amelia Groom? No, I didn't. I just want to show you. Like, I think you'd really like... I already am into this person. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that she wrote a book about this black artist is yeah. fascinating to me. It's something I, I would like to... I would like to write a book about somebody. Oh, yes. The vibe is on, dude. The vibe is on. That haircut tells me everything I need to know. Yep. She's had baby bangs for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> very into it you know they would never want to hang out with me but i would admire them they i'd be like you're so cool they would definitely want to hang out with you maybe 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 i just feel like there's just some artists that i've just never i'm not cool enough but that's because it's been my internal you know struggle i always assume they're gonna be really self-serious no i mean sometimes they're just depressed <laughs> and they're like me but I just want to hang out with all the cool artist kids, and I feel like they're always like, this fucking girl. I feel like I'm the weird one in the art group, which is saying something, you know? Like, whatever. Some, now I'm, like, mad at Amelia. I don't know. Yeah, dude. Uh, we've got beef. Okay, I'm going to read the... So dramatic. 
She is singing the song blues again. Like this is this is the most intense I've heard her. It's just a wail of agony. There we go. She plopped down. <laughs> Okay, so the abstract. This article analyzes the structure and implications of Japan's contemporary street fashion cultures, primarily those of Harajuku. Using Roland Barthes' analogy of dress and dressing, it situates the radical subcultural styles within Japanese traditional aesthetics and in a wider history of fashion, examining various motifs from kawaisa to uniforms, cross-dressing, masks, and the politics of secondhand fashion. It deals with theories of authenticity, appearance, and agency. So this article references a lot of a lot of French philosophers, a lot of basically it's like a who's who of fashion theory. And one of them is Roland Barthes. He so he has that analogy of dress and dressing that we're going to talk about. He was a French literary theorist, philosopher, and also a semiotician, which is like someone who studies signs, like signals, signifiers. And so he was really interested in dress because of, of everything that it symbolizes, all the, all the signals that we communicate through our clothes. And he also studied Japan. So I think he's like a very apt reference for this piece. Groom references a few of his works in this article. And so he was really fascinated with fashion for its ability to signify things. And he was one of the first academics to write about fashion, developing the theory that if fashion is a language, it must therefore possess a, a grammatical structure. His first book on the subject was published in 1967, titled The Fashion System. And in this, he analyzes like the flowery descriptive language in fashion magazines like Elle. Mm. Um, As they should. Instead of the images printed in such magazines, he, he studied the language itself, saying, it is not the object, but the name that creates desires. It is not the dream, but the meaning that sells. So a, a few, just a couple quotes from that. He says, every new fashion is a refusal to inherit, a subversion against the oppression of the preceding fashion. Fashion experiences itself as a right, the natural right of the present over the past. He also talked about a, a petticoat or slip, which he says, though invisible, the petticoat can contribute to meaning by altering the volume or the form of the skirt, similarly to a corset. So anyway, just giving right. a little bit of background on him and his theory since it's like one of the core like ideas of this article i'm glad you did that research because i was like reading it and i was like fuck i didn't do any background research on explaining it she talks about chapters so i'm like it seems like there is a book but i didn't find the book so in the intro she talks about this study will outline a brief history of harajuku street fashion since the late 1970s focusing on the interplay of invention and convention authenticity and artifice innovation and imitation she borrows from Descartes' tactical everyday resistance and Roland Barthes structuralist application of dress and dressing in fashion and she did observational research in Tokyo in 2006 and 2007 so throughout the article you see like her photos of people on in like Harajuku dress the intro kind of like summarizes everything so it's almost like I want to get straight to like yeah let's go okay the first chapter, Chronicle of Costumes. Yeah. I loved, oh my God, I loved, literally like I have so much highlighted in this article. It's yeah. Like, the first one really got me though. I My brain was exploding. I even like sent voice memos to the writer about like just reading these chapters. She means the person she's dating that's a writer, not the writer, Amelia Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Because I was just like, this is this is the thing about theory that I find important. It's like people get, get to sit down on their thoughts and think in a way that's 
explaining what they I mean this is like she learned she knows how to read I'm basically explaining how people write but anyways like like they they theorists get to like sit down and really create something uh, string something together that's not only beautiful of something that's like mundane almost it's like a mundane concept but somehow they string it together where it, it illumi- illuminates more. And it's like when you try to explain something to someone and it sounds so fucking basic, but when you read it, it was a blowing up your mind. You're like, that's what it means to be a good writer. Yeah, yeah. And so basically she talks about that underlying the study of Harajuku street fashion is the idea that clothing has less strictly utilitarian value than it's commonly attributed to. And she talks about this guy, Thomas Carlyle, don't know him, his professor, too full. It's like this big ass German name. There's a bunch of names that are coming up that I was like, I don't know this word. I don't know how to say this word. Yeah, but too full's droke tells us in the mid 19th century that the first purpose of clothes were not warmth or decency, but ornament. And among the wild people, we find tattooing and painting even prior to clothes. Fashion has been a part of culture. I've been part of like human culture since the beginning in different ways like people learned how to weave in a certain way with creating their clothes that was just purely for aesthetic yeah like literally people were tattooing their bodies and like they're saying it's not to cover up their genitals it's not to protect them from the elements the things that we think of clothes like we think of clothing is like that that's the basic purpose it fulfills and if you want to add frills to it that's your own deal but like we have been adorning our bodies since the dawn of time. Yes, exactly. And then, like, that's why if we actually had culture still thriving, ex- existing without having – capitalism has killed any sense of, like, providing uniqueness in tribes, basically, essentially. And therefore, we lose culture from that. There's a loss of ornateness because ornateness, it's just, like, not there to be productive. It's like – I also feel like there's, like – like some communist regimes, like there's been a lot of regimes under which ornamentation has not thrived. And like right now we're under capitalism and it's like, yeah, it's squashing it. It's well, like fascism kills it too. Like capitalism is helping fascism exist. But anyways, like in in this capacity, you know, um, but that's why I'm like, to me, the more this state becomes more and more fascist. It's like anytime there's been oppression it's like you have to have freedom and time. You have to have space to create, to orna- to like ornament things, right. essentially. And we talked about this a little bit in our episode about minimalism. Um, this quote like just fucking kills me. Human history is not the history of flesh and bone and blood, but a mere chronicle of costumes. Which is very true. We, I mean, like the corset is an example of that. Like just having that as a topic. And they, they briefly mentioned that. It's just like it's not the corset's fault that we have beauty standards of dress. The, it, the course it exists because we have costumes that we existed in and yeah and thinking about costume also is like more literal of like for performance and for it's like it's about narrative it's about the stories that we tell and like we tell the stories we tell about ourselves or about our communities like through costume it's like again it's cultural like yeah. Catherine the Great I watched the show The Great, and I, like, do – I've read a couple books on her now because I'm not saying I'm an expert by any means because I never finish any of the books, but um, I have read some things. But one thing that she did in the show that she also did in real life was, like, for her – I don't think she actually wore the exact thing, but for her, like, day that she got to be emperor or whatever, emperor, like, the head, like, head honcho, she wore, like, r- older Russian – clothing like folk clothing Mm. 
that was still of like wealth, but it wasn't European. It wasn't showing the wigs. Oh, your mic's about to fall off. And she really practiced in her fashion because she wasn't actually fully Russian as she was German, but she wanted, she was, since she was running essentially Russia, she wanted to acclimate to the culture. So she would wear like folk earrings. Like there would be an, an, an obvious statement of I'm choosing Russia mm-hmm. with her options of clothing that she's showing. But yeah, so there's just like these costumes exist again to create a language between people, and right. and uh, one thing that they say when they say that the first purpose of clothes wasn't warmth or decency, I think that's interesting because warmth is obviously a necessity, like that people had to probably provide clothes for that existence. Decency is just a concept that we came up with. Right. Um, Which has changed throughout time. Right. But it's still, it's so much a part of clothing that it's interesting because it's a, it's a social construct that impacts what we wear. Impacts it just so ubiquitously, the fact that like we have to wear clothing. Yeah. And so then she talks about how from 1977 to 1998, the main street in Harajuku called Omote Sando was declared Hokoten or pedestrian haven and cars were banned every Sunday. It's like... In America, we're like, oh, my God, closing the streets. It's this new idea we had. No. When I was, like, quote, unquote, living in Mexico, they would shut down the street every Sunday. And, like, you'd see bikers. Yeah, it was, like, a whole thing. It's not just in the U.S. It's right. Not, it's not just anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, the tribes that arose in the area, one of the tribes that arose in the area was called, I'm not going to, I'm actually. You're not going to say it? But Take gonna... Noko Zuku, or Baby Bamboo Shoots tribe. So they wore these like garish colored shiny robes and cheap accessories like plastic whistles, long fake pearl necklaces, name tags, stuffed animals stitched to the ensemble, which is like very uh, everything everywhere all at once. It's like she had the stuffed animals on there. Oh, I love that. On her dress. Yeah. Super Harajuku inspired. And they'd perform choreographed dance moves for hour on end. Which I think is kind of hilarious. They're just like dressing up and going out dancing. Yeah, and so it's like they had this vibrant sphere of inclusion, she writes, where their constructed self-image made them intensely visible, but also kept them distanced from their surroundings and from the audiences they drew. Again, it's like you're identifying with the tribe, but you're also keeping a distance from the audience. So you're almost, you're othering yourself, but also opening up the door to be others to be involved. Yeah, and it's like just this like very conscious, self-aware it's not like, oh, I dress this way because I'm part of this community. It's like, I'm part of this community because I dress this way. Yeah. It's pure aesthetics. I mean, that's something that we'll get into as well. But it is just like purely aesthetics. And I guess just the communal aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I work in urban design and it's public space is just so important. Like closing that street helped to foster like an entire exactly. fashion movement. And it makes me think of like the Drew Austin piece that we talked about several episodes ago um the episode was called the problem with fashion and tech and drew austin wrote about how this was like last year or something it's a recent article but wrote about like how would we go wear fashion in public people see us they can draw inspiration from us and it's all free and part of the commons whereas like when you do it online it's a different thing there is like you just aren't providing the same thing to the public because like first of all you're making money for a tech company by doing it and it's also like you're not really actually participating in society well, in the commons, like in the sense that purely dressing to dress to be seen, 
like we, what we've done in the, in the U.S. especially, but like I think now just in this time period is we believe everything needs to be monetized. Right. So there's a sense of knowing that like, you have to do, you have to look a certain way to do so, something that could be monetized. Right. And e- either monetized in that you're generating money for the platform or you're like explicitly an influencer or even just like the currency of engagement of likes of whatever. Yeah. And lately I'm feeling like less, it's like I like posting about my outfits on social media. I like the community I found on social media where like I like that I've met people online through posting outfits and whatever. But it's like I'm feeling much more excited about the experience of wearing outfits out in real life, which are like, yeah, also has to do with COVID restrictions being different now. Right. Yeah. I rack up the compliments. People are constantly giving me compliments. I don't even think I look especially like better than anybody else. I think I just look different. And they're like, hey, I really like that thing that you're doing. And it feels so good. It feels so good to like interact with people in that way. Um, Not that Harajuku was never commodified, like quite the opposite. Yeah. So they have these like playful interpretations of place and commodities. And so they're forming these tactics of resistance, avoidance and escape. This was especially during the 90s at its height when before, I mean, like she claims that early 2000s, late 90s, there was a a rebelliousness of radicalness through dress that it, now it's kind of lost that sense. And it might be because of how much commodification happens now versus then it was just like existing in that space and being inspired and just like in constant movement to like people were actively taking up the space. And it's like also they call it the Hoko 10 years. So it's like the, the, the streets no longer closed off, yada, yada. And she gets into like the idea of authenticity and talks about how Harajuku fashion destabilizes the idea of the trans historical body or naturally occurring agents beneath the surface. So like I looked up trans historical body, which is basically just like a body free from history, a body like that exists across time. It's like there was like a church that was using the term, but that seems like everything like a body. That just seems like a body. Yeah, I don't fully understand it, but she talks about how like we constitute ourselves as hippie, hillbilly, hip hop simply by looking the part. These subcultures were not grown organically in Japan, but were adapted retrospectively with obsessive attention to details of, of dress, music, dance moves, or whatever. And like, as an example, she talks about the early 2000s trend for surfer style, where like people were bleaching their hair, having fake tans, having like faux hibiscus flowers on everything. And so like these Japanese teens were adopting the style and bleaching their hair, having bright blue contacts and be, being caricatures of these California beach babes. And so it's like, it's not that anymore. It's not the surfer subculture. It's like an entirely new thing. And she writes like, nothing is purely innovative or imitative. The process of repetition always introduces an element of metamorphosis. Consumers don't take on things passively or uncritically, but they relocate signs from their original context and transform their meetings. And so it's like clothes, the clothes have these signals and these meanings, but then when you like, wear them in a different place on a different body or in a different time like that meaning shifts well there's also just like this hyper realism that's obviously fake that they're not trying to allude to like being transformed into a california girl they're like showcasing that the the illusions there there and that's part of the aesthetic so it looks like a copy and and that's what they're going for it's not supposed to be quote-unquote authentic but it is authentic in that it's it has all this the I, I don't want to say stereotypes, but it has all the tropes of whatever that uh, aesthetic is. Well, it's just that it's it's like authentically a different thing. It's authentically Harajuku. Sir, it's like 
it's not just because it's you're imitating someone doesn't mean what you have produced, what you have discovered, created, is inauthentic. It's because it's not because you can't actually reproduce it because it's going to be different. Right. But I think what's explicitly makes them Harajuku in the sense of like what they're doing isn't that they're taking on, they're not even basing it in political, like, I feel like if anybody in the US was taking on a California look, it was to literally look like a California girl. They're taking it completely out of context with no really like rooted in reality, just like looking at a picture being like, Mm -hmm. I want that. Mm -hmm. And then putting it on their body, but also like knowing that's not the, they're not, they know that they're not pulling off I'm from California girl, but, and it, it's part of the whole culture in in itself. It's just like copies of itself is part of the art process. Mm -hmm. It's confusing because like there is no good or bad in this. It's just like, this is how fashion should exist, but also like there should be, like sometimes there should be history focused of like, and I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just like, there's a part of it that's like of completely like it's out of context, which makes it so cool and interesting. But also like they're like saying it's apolitical and it's like not, you can't really, they're not providing a sense of politics to how they dress. But at the same time, you're just like people like us come with our biases and our history of knowledge. I don't know if it cannot not be political. Can anything be? I feel like we can say that everything's political, but like I think some aesthetic movements are more explicitly tied to politics where you have like the Black Panthers. Right. Even the punk movement. But like, I think what she kind of gets into in this article is that the politics of it is that there was the prescribed uniform. From what I like read, it was during the Meiji period, 1867 to 1912, that they introduced this like idea of uniform or whatever. And so like part of the politics of Harajuku was in reaction to the like part of Japanese culture that is about being uniform, about right. being same. Yeah, because they will, in this article, they mention about how J- Japan, I think we might be skipping ahead, but Japan is the most uniform country in the world which i don't i don't know how you can make sure of that or like do research on that but i i I guess culturally it's very like you're either in a uniform or you're providing some kind of individuality to the existence there's like it's just it creates such a juxtaposition of extremity that you like you're either in uniform or you're like celebrating being out of uniform Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah, it goes into the next factor being a thing, a thing to wear. Again, Eddard Barthes. How do you say? Bart. I love this. But yeah, it goes into dress versus dressing. Yeah. So the way I interpreted this, and let me know, it, it contrasts with how you did, was that dress, dress is like the clothes themselves. Dress is like the, the what has been produced, what has been sold to you, the the garment. Whereas dressing is like how you wear it, essentially. Yeah. I mean, how I thought of it is it. It's like, why did the tomato blush? Because it's all the salad dressing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a joke. I like, I couldn't help it. Anyways, uh, dressing, yeah, essentially is like you're putting on the costume and you're exuding whatever that costume is like giving. Well, and it's like also about how you adapt it like how you alter it even if that's just rolling up a sleeve what groom actually writes is that according to roland bart fashion is a system comprising dress the social reality independent of the individual and dressing which takes place when the subject actualizes on their body the inscription of dress this is one of those things if you like explain it to someone they'd be like yeah so putting on clothes 
Well, how I think of it, yeah. That, but those people can go. You're okay. not one of those people. <laughs> if you made it this far already, you're not one of those people. Okay, so to me, dress is like clothes that you put on without thought, like aka your work outfit, like your work clothes. Like people wear consistently wear work clothes and don't think about it, right? Or like even the workout clothes. They're just it's like for practicality, for practicality's sake. You're just doing that. So this is just my per, this personal kind of understanding of how I applied it. And then dressing is how you want to be seen. And so it is like when you go out into the world, into a community that you are excited to be a part of, and how you present yourself, essentially. That's how I think of it. And I think that's just how Japanese culture is as, as well. If it's like the uniform is the dress, out being outside of the uniform is the dressing. The dress, yeah, so much of it is uniform because that is like the dress that society has produced. But I still feel like there can be dressing and wearing it like... So another thing I highlighted, the fashion structure does not simply hang dress objects on passive bodies. Consumers must be active in dressing themselves, which I mean, gets blurry with uniform because it's like, you're not really active. And so maybe, yeah, there is an absence of dressing. You're not really, it kind of is just a thing that's being hung on you. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because it's also, I feel like a lot of it has to do with the individual's intention every time they're wearing an outfit. So who knows if someone's dressing, dress or dressing, but I guess there also is social context. Like, who who are you rebelling against in the sense, if you're dressing, there's a sense of rebellion too, of expression. So, I mean, it's like the whole anti-fashion versus fashion. Fashion being dressed and anti-fashion being dressing is what I would assume. I mean, it doesn't have to be a dichotomy. I don't think that dressing is necessarily an act of resistance like it seems like it's literally just the act of putting on clothes like if you think of like target produces a lot of objects of dress and there's like all these things you can have to choose from but even the simple act of like choosing one shirt over another or pairing a pair of pants with something it's like that is an act of dressing you might not be saying something on purpose but you are saying something through what you choose yeah that's when i'm like you can't really tell the individual's experience but like so this is the other thing where i'm like there is this we everything is pushed through a social lens so like we are reacting to the norms that are presented to us and some people there's a gradient of how people dress and like some people are like i don't care about clothes but even when you say you don't care about clothes you're still like you're still reacting within the social norm so you're putting on the outfits that that have been provided for you as an idea that's just like been normalized like you can wear shorts and a shirt but is that just being if you don't care does that mean that you're just a dress but you're still dressing in a sense that i think that you're applying social norms to yourself without thinking yeah well and i think like brian and i were having this conversation the other day where he was saying there could be five people who tell you that they don't care about what they wear and they could dress hugely different like one person says i don't care and they wear car hearts and a greasy t-shirt because they work on cars or another person says i don't care what i wear and they wear like uh, like super nice sweatpants and like sweatsuits because they like they're like a tech person or whatever. right like, and it, it's kind of gotten into in this article where it's like you cannot escape that your clothes have meaning right they are read by people right exactly and so, so I'm, it's hard to differ I, I, I'm, I'm glad there's a description of dress versus dressing in the sense that it, it should exist because there is like intention behind people's clothes but it's you can't look at anybody or anything, I think, and be like, that's dressing versus that's dress. Well, the, I think from the definition, it's like dressing, when you involve the individual, it's dressing because we dress mm. ourselves. And so it's like the dress is like the production, the societal production, whether that's literally like the clothing that's produced by the factory or whether that's like the norms that are produced by society. 
And then the dressing is like when the individual has to translate that onto their body okay. every day. I love that. Okay, cool. Moving forward now, now that we've gotten that. <laughs> In the act of uh, addressing, authority is decentralized. So it is a sense of, to me, an act of resistance. Because it's like, especially, sorry, this is exclusively talking about Harajuku and as in dressing. Right. This isn't talking about just like dressing as a, a as a global concept. Yeah. yeah. The, how this, the street at the time and still now, it's, it's still got its like remnants of it. And, and it's how people dress. Like the, the people, the way people are dressing is decentralizing any kind of social hierarchy. Well, like. So I feel like there's ways that you can resist that involve dress where I could say, I'm not going to buy new items. I'm simply going to thrift. And so the dress that I'm like consuming is only a certain kind of stuff. And so the simple objects that I'm choosing is like an act of resistance. Whereas with Harajuku, it's like, they're no, they're not anti-capitalist. They're like, they're consuming the the products of society, but right. it's the way they put them together and what they do with them, the dressing that like makes it an act of resistance. Exactly. Continually borrowing from Japanese rich visual heritage, the street fashion is an evolutionary as it is revolutionary. So it's constantly evolving, but it's always pushing against the norm, which makes it so dialectic, which they do use this word dialectic. Okay, side note, we're going to go off a little bit, okay? I was applying for socialist alternative, okay? I have a lot of trauma from it. I talked about it too much to everybody all the time. I didn't get into socialist alternative. I want everybody to know I didn't get accepted into socialist alternative. And I have decided that it's because of the amount of barrettes that I was wearing and um, how I looked because they are all they are majority engineer scientists. How do I know? Because the writer got accepted into it, okay? Does he have a sense of fashion i don't want to say he doesn't he's it's more it's more aesthetically pleasing than probably anybody else but like the way he talks he can sound like he knows things and i sound stupid sometimes because i ask questions to learn more and i am i am unapologetically i am okay with sounding stupid i think that what makes me uh, like who i am it's like they want people to be to seem like they want to yeah they just want people to already be they're like anti-bimbo they're anti-bimbo no they completely are they completely are. And I ask questions like, what the fuck is dialectic? And during this, not interview process, but interview process, they were like, we're not interviewing you. And I'm like, what are we fucking doing here then? You're judging me and then you're telling me I can't be involved in your group? So that seems like an interview. Yeah. Anyways, I asked what dialectic is. I totally think that no one really knows what it is. And Austin, Austin's always like, well, I mean, Heger really did do a lot of research on it. He's the, basically the guy that came up with a dialectic, but it's used with Marxist theory a lot, explaining like economy. And the woman that was interviewing me was like, well, it is a complicated and nuanced concept. And I'm like, you don't know what fucking means either. Does anybody fucking know what it means? Anyways, I think I got myself in trouble for uh, not knowing what dialectic mm-hmm. is and just being really stupid about it because I, I truly still like don't really understand. But from what I've gathered, the, from what the writer was explaining to me was that it's like two powers that are kind of fighting each other. One's like the smaller, marginalized groups. And then there's always like the powers that be. Mm-hmm. So when it says like it's, it's, it's evolutionary as it is revolutionary, it's talking about how it's completely evolving all the time and in that contrast like the new is always the evolution but it's also revolutionary because it's the new 
because it's always that smaller group taking over. There's like this push and pull right, to it. Right, right, right. So and, yeah, and anything new is then inherently revolutionary because it's like inherently rejecting the past. Yes, exactly. They also talk about the kimono and how like it has never deviated from the basic untailored T-shape and it only comes in two sizes, man and woman. And how like rather than emphasizing the human form and striving for the ideal figure as Western dress has done, the kimono has its own structure and silhouette that is independent of the individual. So it's like it. Lula out. I know, I know. Poor thing. You think that you beat her. You think that you hit her all the time or something. Yeah. <laughs> in- instead, she's just absolutely spoiled. Lulu, lie down. You're stressing mama out. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, next we get to something that I loved. It's talking about how change in fashion has often been explained as a trickle-down effect of class imitation followed by class aversion. But wearing the latest style is no longer a privilege reserved for the upper strata. And mutations in fashion cannot be understood as a simple process of diffusion from elite to the masses. And so rather than trickle down, they talk about bubble up where the trends bubble up from below. It reminded me of what you were talking about with Bama Rush, where they're saying like wearing the latest style is no longer a privilege reserved for the upper strata. Like we can buy clothes. We can buy trendy clothes for cheap. And like you can also buy expensive clothes. Like I was I can't remember. I think I was like watching a TikTok or a YouTube or something where they were like, you know, there's been times where you show your class through dress in a really government prescribed way where it's like this class is supposed to wear this. This class is supposed to wear this. And now it's like you could make $20,000 a year and technically you are allowed to buy a $12,000 clothing item. It's not wise, but you're allowed to. Like you could present as a higher class if you want to. Or you could present as something. It's classless in the sense that anybody could buy it. Right. And this is an example of this because they really take right. that in like how it's just constantly trends, different trends happening constantly. And the reason it's so accessible is because it is cheap. It's DIY. It's like constant. It's just like providing an outlet of being able to be trendy because it's so, again, so cheap to do do so. They talk about anti-fashion versus like the Teddy Boys, the Beats, Rockers, Rude Boys, Mods, and numerous other stylistic categories. He, uh, this one guy looks at, uh, most of us would be left without anything to wear without these, these groups, which I don't know if I totally agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I didn't fully understand that part. I didn't either, but I think there's, to this, because like, I've done a, at this point too much research on Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren. This brought up to me about the accessibility of anti-fashion and how like anti-fashion is the, is, is against the fashion norm consistently that's what makes it dialectic basically but it essentially is fashion but one of the things that they did was sell the t-shirt the printed Mm t-shirt that was what they considered anti-fashion and it was so cheap and so accessible and so easy to make Mm -hmm. that it was like transformative for for the fashion industry they were the first to kind of like capitalize on that i feel like anti-fashion exists in the affordability i can't explain it's like because fashion is always seen as elite to some capacity and it's like spinning that on its head being like what if so anti-fashion must be the opposite of that yeah she complicates so many of these ideas where it's like in order to be anti-fashion you have to understand fashion you have to know what you're yeah what you're trying to not do right and so in that way it's like 
you're still participating in the system because you exactly you you have to in order to to speak the language exactly and that's the thing that is so funny with Vivian Westwood and and Malcolm McLaren they knew what they were doing they were I love Vivian Westwood as as you know but I also can't stand the woman because they're all just like drifters and con men that uh, Vivian Westwood is actually talented like DIY artist but she is I mean like Malcolm McLaren she was if if anything she learned from him was just how to make a dime and it's just like throwing words like they knew what anti-fashion and being like you're revolutionizing by buying our products it's like they were selling something yeah but they were very much knowledgeable of being alternative and like how to make money off the alternative right right and so this idea of recuperation comes up again which we talked about in the context of vivian westwood and in the context of there was that article um the terry nguyen article on how trends are meaningless now and they talk about the Guy Debord this article doesn't mention Guy Debord but it does mention recuperation which was one something that Guy Debord talked about where there's a subculture that produces these like articles of meaning and then they get recuperated by the mainstream or by the elite like they get sold basically they get they sell out man or like and so they they don't have the same meaning. Wearing that T-shirt no longer means you're a punk. It just means that you got um, a punk-inspired T-shirt from Target. Um, but they say that like the within Harajuku, this concept of recuperation is complicated because it's post-recuperation. Like they're adopting these objects that have already been commercialized. They're taking them from the commercial sphere and then they're almost like unrecuperating them where they're like the way that they're wearing them and like it's void of like reaction just because none of it really makes sense. It's obviously using the reaction and making a non-reaction out of the reaction, if that may, like, using punk as as an item of, of dressing, but, like, not but not really identifying it as punk. It's something else, as it always is in Harajuku, but it's, like, it, it doesn't even look like it's punk anymore. Right, right. But it, you can tell it's punk because it's still the same items of punk, but it doesn't even really present so it's it's something else yeah at one point they use the word bricolage which i had to look up but it's basically like you're combining all these symbols and meanings into this whole new it's like baking where you have all these ingredients and then when you bake it it's like it's you're you're not eating flour anymore you're eating a cake right i love that and so there's no coherent fashion mainstream but there's simultaneous fashion systems for different cultures different classes lifestyles age groups and localities some trickle down some bubble up some move horizontally some remain more or less where they started. Tastes are not simply dictated, and we should acknowledge the complexity and idiosyncratic, sensual significance of material things in people's lives. Clothes are invested with both individual and collective facets of identity, memory, and imagination. Yeah, and then they also talk about the relationship between producer and consumer and how it's redefined in Harajuku because it's such a DIY concept. You are pulling from all these things and you're reselling them. And it's just like kind of a constant push and pull. And a lot of young people just start their own brand or like label without any formal training, which I think is really fucking cool. And how cell girls are essentially major players in creating new fashion sensibilities and can become iconic, charismatic sales girls with celebrity status. Yeah, they're like talking about like the people who work in these stores and they become like celebrities like. Yeah. And that there's like these teens who are basically running things. They're just pulled off the streets to become editors in magazines. They're having these really influential roles. Again, kind of like flipping the elite association with publishing industry on its head where it's like 
Right. They would just go out and get a few like 18 year olds. They like they had photo booths in the magazine offices where they would just invite like have these teens coming in to just like take photos of themselves and like that was how the content was being produced yeah basically insinuating that their ideas are better currency than like skill set which is cool had you heard of fruits magazine before no one of my friends who's super into thrifting she's the one who got me on like thrifting youtube basically she was really into fruits magazine and was like always on the hunt for a copy of it and it seems really cool it's like i think it was fruits or maybe a similar magazine they were talking about where it's like there's no copy the only copy is like the wearer's name and the yeah that's it so it's really just about the imagery and and the people who wearing the clothes like there's no really like narrative assigned to it or like created for it interesting wait where is it from japan so moving on to like the individual conformity chapter technology of conformity in tokyo the world's most populated metropolis fosters the fantasy of rebellion harajuku fashion People everywhere look to be different only within permitted social parameters. But according to Donald Ritchie, the dual existence of conformity and individualism is vital in Japan because of the emphasis on group identity. Right. And so it's why Harajuku is and was so meaningful is because of the reaction to the culture of conformity. So the, the whole thing of like, it's saying like each new fad registers a small criticism of whatever they wore before. And this sort of small protest is the kind of criticism most popular in Japan. It reminded me of what we were saying about, like there was a there was a quote in the September issue that was like about how fashion is about what's new and now. And you were like, but fashion isn't about what's new and now. It's like, there's so much nostalgia. We're just recycling things. And, but this, like reading this made me think of just doing it in a slightly different way. It's like yeah. with each fad, you're basically being like, no, we're doing things different. It's always a rejection of the past. It's always revolutionary. Right. It's like new students just or new kids just popping up that wanting to create their own platform so they have to recreate their own a different reality that's and especially when that what they're going against is something else that's already going dif- against a different reality right so it's just all kind of like spurting off it's not pushing against each other it's just spurting out cha- chaotically right within the same space yeah and he and she talks about that kind of within like academia where it's like There's this ongoing battle in any field between those who want to defend the traditions of the field and the newcomers who want to render the established values obsolete. It's like in order to be an academic, you have to be like, you were wrong. Here's my new idea. Because otherwise, what are you doing? Why are you even there reading your books if you don't have any new ideas? (laughs) That's fair. What if you're just a history major? It's not proving anybody wrong. It's just retelling the story, right? Well, but you're supposed to be like telling a narrative that's if, it, if it's already been told, then why are you telling it? Yeah. But yeah, I guess you could just be like, well, here's another story. I mean, like... Ever it, heard of this one? Yeah. And so that was like P- Pierre Bourdieu, Bourdieu, another French king. And he's talking about taste. Taste is about distinction, a system of social organization that ensures a perpetually unequal distribution of power. Aesthetic stances legitimate social differences and are opportunities to experience or assert one's position in social space, which again makes me think of Vogue where it's like, here's what, here's the taste you should have if you're rich. Here's, here's what rich people think is good. We're distinguishing ourselves as rich, as, as high class, high society. You should read these books. You should like theater. You shouldn't like NASCAR. Right. That's not rich. Yeah. And I do think this is interesting. Fashion's greatest paradox is that it forms a statement of criticism as well as an expression of the desire for sameness. Mm -hmm. Anti-fashion does not challenge fashion per se. It shakes up the structure, but fashion can always absorb it. Like, I, well, I keep on going back to Vivian Westwood's shirt because it's not like she they invented the shirt. The shirt was already part of fashion. Right. 
it was just like the taking on the shirt and calling it fashion, anti-fashion, was the anti-fashion aspect right. of it. Well, because fashion isn't garments. It's like the ideas of what garments you should wear, how and when and whatever. So it's like, yeah. And so a lot of this we already touched on. The, the boundary between authentic resistance and commercial recuperation does not exist. Harajuku styles intertwined with entrepreneurship and the teens have no delusions or pretensions of fighting capitalism. According to Kawamura, Harajuku street style identity is never political or ideological, but simply innovative fashion that determines group affiliation. Then they talk about the punk movement. Like the punk movement when it came out was only about fashion, which I was like, a lot, that's not what a lot that's... of people say. So I think actually to, to I'm, I've already read this article twice and I'm still like Learning. processing it, but it's, it's when Amy Spindler wrote in the New York Times that there are no politics behind the Tokyo fashion movements. I think she was saying when punk came to Tokyo or when punk came to Harajuku, that it was it was always about fashion. I don't think now that I'm rereading this, it sounds like maybe they don't they aren't meaning that like the original punk. I I'm gonna go. I'm gonna trust her on that. Harajuku is apolitical or conceptually is apolitical. Um, so sure, but like I definitely know there were Japanese punk bands Mm -hmm. that existed to fight the system they weren't and i guess it could be exclusively to harajuku so maybe it's like by the time the that punk like at this time and place the use of the punk aesthetic was separate from the punk ideology maybe and like again punk came music came later in japan because it's a western like the punk aesthetic is western so it might have shifted in look and aesthetic by that point. But there is like, there's more than just an aesthetic to punk is what I'm trying to get to. But I'm I'm in the world of Harajuku isn't just everything just an aesthetic anyways. So it seems kind of weird to like pull out punk as being an aesthetic. Well, I think what she's saying is that by the time they get to Harajuku, the punk movement was just about fashion. The hip hop movement has nothing to do with rebellion I see. Boy style has nothing to do with women's rights. If you ask girls why they're wearing it, it's because it's cute. But if they just wanted to look cute, why are they adopting these signs, these signifiers into their dress? Like you could just wear, you could just be cute in one way. I feel like it is more than that. Like, yeah, but I also think they're just being sold things. So they don't really know the context of the clothes themselves all the time. Yeah, maybe. I don't know enough about. I know I don't know if enough about it, but I thought the whole point was that like they're being sold a million things, and they're like meticulously recreating aesthetics. I don't know. It's like they're cosplaying subcultures. Yeah. Um. Do you want to get onto like the gender stuff? Sure do. I kind of like skip this because it's pretty obvious, but it is interesting. But obviously, I mean, within Harajuku, since it is like. Just constantly evolving, which means, of course, men dress feminine. Right. And women dress masculine. Yeah. Or admit, older women dress like a baby. <laughs> yeah, there's there's cross-dressing. But, okay, I just want to bring up the word cross-dressing. I, I know that we're using it. Okay, so, like, the writer, the guy I'm seeing, has used that he cross-dresses. And I'm like, women don't use that when they wear pants, say that when they – or dress masks. There's no – you're just wearing a dress. There's no, or like with makeup. There's not like cross-dressing to me is acknowledging the binary to, on one side of it. It is an outdated term. And I think like this article was written 11 years ago. And yeah, I agree. I mean, pants, 
pants at one point were controversial to wear up until the 1930s, but now it's like the dress really is one of the last symbols that's like one of the last garments that's so specifically feminine. We've got like bras, corsets, corsets, dresses, which is like the best stuff. But yeah, I I, I just want to point out cross-dressing is exclusively like geared towards men dressing in yeah, dresses. Right. And like very binary focus where it's like, I'm crossing over to the other side. Exactly. When I'm like, I think when we use the word cross-dressing, we're reinforcing that concept that there's a masculine look and that's it. Right. And that you're like and – and it almost assumes that you're dressing against what you actually are instead of just expressing another part of yourself. Exactly. And she – yeah, she she talks – she quotes Vivian Westwood. It's a just a question of adjusting the eyes. It's only perverse because it's unexpected. She says that Westwood is revered in Harajuku. Hell yeah. I mean, I get it. She mentions Virginia Woolf. I read Orlando in college. She talks, it's like the non-essentialness of gender is demonstrated in Virginia Woolf's Orlando, where initially feeling no different after transforming from man to woman, that's the character Orlando transforms from man to woman, we read, initially feeling no different after transforming from man to woman, we read, once Orlando has been wearing skirts for a while, a certain change was visible. She finds herself being treated differently and becoming more modest, more vain, more fearful of her safety. It is clothes that wear us and not we them. So basically it's like clothes are more gender than genitals. Yeah. Genders is like what we are performing. And, and but like even if you're a cis woman, you're performing being a woman. And like if you're getting, if you get a boob job, that's gender affirming surgery as much as if a person assigned male at birth gets a boob job. job. You're yeah. both affirming your gender. And I love how like they're talking about this as, as with dress where it's like, they feel more like a woman because they wear a dress and because than when they have a vagina. Yeah, and I want to also point this out because I had a, con- a conversation recently about non-binary and people being like, I just never felt like I've always been woman. I was like, a lot of people would even say that they always felt woman because they're in the construct of being a woman. I think a lot of people are non-binary because they're pushing against – you're already oppressed as a woman and identifying as a woman means you're accepting the binary as the, a form of oppression – Versus if you're non-binary, you're deciding to not accept that narrative and be like, I'm going to step outside of this binary because I don't want to identify what a male has decided uh, a woman should be. Because it is patriarchal, like how, especially in our culture and most cultures, a woman is to benefit a man in some capacity and how we are structurally present is hypothetically again to benefit for man so non-binary a lot of the time exists for people to denounce their their participation in that structure right and and what's interesting is that another way she's talking about that they denounce that structure is by dressing like cute little babies like she talks about the, the lolita subculture which is a highly feminized aesthetic derived from Victoria dolls with ribbons, lace embroidery, bonnets, corsetry, frills, hair and ringlets, and becoming a Lolita is laborious and at the end result is so constructed as to indicate the performity of all female identity and, you know, and people of all genders and whatever can can dress Lolita. It's like, or people, like, there's men who also dress Lolita. 
but she talks about how like there's all these these expectations of adulthood in Japan, like of being an adult female and like what you're expected to do for right. your husband and whatever. And so like people think of them dressing as cute little babies as just appealing to the male gaze. And that's certainly an element. But it's also this element of like, no, I'm not going to grow up and just do your fucking dishes. Like I'm not going to grow up and be what society wants an adult woman to be. Yeah, they're like they're rejecting being an adult because they know that comes with all these problems essentially and like cosplay as a child means that you can be a child right right (laughs) you don't have to have those adult functions in that dressing in that costume and they do a lot of pigeon foot which in photography which i find interesting because i definitely done pigeon foot as a grown woman what's that putting your foot toes inward oh and definitely a tumbler look i've i know taylor swift has done it um, and I, I cringed when I read that because I was like, I have some photos where I put my feet in like that. And then this one guy was like, oh, you're so cute. You're you're putting your toes in, like reinforcing that. And I was just like, I remember being like, I look like a 10-year-old. <laughs> well, I'm glad you gave some additional context to that. But yeah, it is definitely a, a stance, like a bodily stance that kind of gives like, me baby. Anyways, yeah. Yeah. And then we get into some surveillance stuff it's like literally touching on so many things so while in modern japan all can have at their disposal a vast array of choice with regard to appearance that this democratic ideal has meant that everyone is burdened with the pressure of an ever-changing spectacularized fashion culture that implies strict surveillance and scrutiny of the self very much like what we were talking about with the panopticon episode like there's this fashion machine that's like cranking out different stuff oh but then they say This permanent unconscious sense of being visible is only superficially escaped by the subcultures of Harajuku, where playful, norm-breaking bodily presentation is encouraged and made public. Although subculture identities are negotiated in opposition to an imagined mainstream, there's the same self-regulation and omnipresent panoptical scrutiny imposing an intense pressure to see oneself and be seen in certain ways. Just talking about the visibility of being seen and how things get appropriated into fetish cultures um, and media has an influence on how culture exists, which is obvious, but also like, I don't think it's, sometimes I wish I got into communications, like communication theory, Mm. because media has such, it does have, you, if you have control of the media, I've said this multiple times before, I think on this podcast, but if you have control of the media, you have control of the world. Mm -hmm. And with having media there's always going to be a fetishization of the media in some capacity Mm. and as we'll see like a lot of these informal codes the uniform appear frequently to subversive context while designed to desexualize the body by restricting movement and concealing shape that have long been appropriated in fetish cultures it's not surprising then that the japanese culture of official dress breeds a unique fetishism of the uniform the most widespread example being the adult male perversion for the uniform schoolgirl. Like I was saying mm-hmm. with anime, <laughs> if you ever watch an anime that's not, I mean, like a base level anime show, there's usually a uniform uniform teen girl that's like dumb and obsessed with something. Yeah, it's almost like fetishizing like the control because it's like they're they're adhering to it. But what so what is this trying to save though? That the street culture... I feel like it's almost like saying because they have access to all these ch- all this choice, then they also are subject to the self-surveillance that, that is having to keep up with it, like having to keep up with 
basically having to keep up with fashion. And like they talk about photography as being central and, you know, there's a lot of street photography. There's a bunch of, there's these arcades where they have like the photo booths and like photographers from the various teen street style magazines just spend hours in Harajuku cap- capturing the latest individual artistry of dressing. And so it's like both the people on the street shape what's being produced because the their outfits are literally what's in the magazine, but the presence of the photographers also shape the reality of the place. Like, because they're choosing who they want to take photos of, but also just the very presence of them changes people's ha- behavior. And like, so yeah. it's just like, it's a theater. It's like just very, there's like a, there's like a, theatricality happening yeah and she also finally talks about Kawhi, which i know my roommate has been or my old roommate has been pushing me to talk about because he's like it's really cool because it's a bunch of teenagers that just got together and decided they wanted to just look cute so they just are cute and i remember also again not to bring up the writer a lot but like he says stuff to me sometimes and it hits in my brain that i remember later but he just he did bring up i was like oh like the kawaii fashion because like the only reason i remember it's because my old roommate would talk about it um and specifically that look with like that has been taken on by gwen stefani and katie perry and a lot of like they always have a kawaii moment i swear to god um a lot of pop stars have taken on that look Anyways, um, it's like a lot of brats. It's like tons of brats, like usually buns in their hair, which I've taken from like with the brats. I love brats. Um, And I think we have as a culture taken that. But there's also like a schoolgirl element to it. And it's giving, it's just like a kawaii in itself, he he was saying, isn't just a fashion concept. It is the word, it translates as cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's the part where it's like, they're talking about escaping adulthood and like the pigeon toes and um, yeah, like escaping the drudgery of married life. Right. And so like if they're anxious about future subservience, obscurity, etc., it's like that there's like some escapism within that aesthetic. We get to the politics of reuse. They encourage a DIY approach to fashion and often include sewing or crochet patterns. That's so cool. I know. Magazines should have crochet patterns. Vogue, if you're listening. No, but they, Vogue would never, because they would never give anything for free, even though you're buying the magazine. Yeah. um, They're trying to sell you clothes, not make your own. This is, like, literally, that's what they consider fashion. Do we have a magazine? God. I, I think we should start, I mean, that's later in the future, but I do think we should start writing. We should write something together. Yeah. By the end of all this, before we die. Yeah, right now the next goal is to to make some clothes, to do a little fashion line. Obviously, recycled materials. Yeah, it would be completely recycled. We have a lot of ideas. We started a Pinterest board. Reach out to us if you want to see our Pinterest board. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, and so like, so there's an independent designer in secondhand fashion district called Uruhara or Harajuku's Backstreets. And here, the affordability of fashion and eclecticism of ideas is refreshing. The shoppers there express a triumph of dressing over dress. And the, the fashion of reuse challenges the value of capitalism by forming a smaller system of inclusion and refusing participation in the ongoing pursuit of new consumer pro- products. This is very 2011. Like, I feel like 11 years later, we're like, yeah, yeah. we know. Yeah, we definitely know. Moving on to the next chapter, which is like all dresses, fancy dress. And this is... Uh, reaffirming to me because I keep on saying we wear our class. Uh-huh. 
And this is kind of taking that uh, concept and spinning on its head. Like I always want, but like, like if you wore a corset a certain time, like a certain point in history, you were saying you're wealth, you're part of the upper slot, you are the elite. Because mm-hmm. corset wasn't available for everybody because it is such a sense of, there was so much work and labor that would, would go into the dress, the dress of it mm-hmm. or outfit or corset. You have to get well bone. You have to, someone has to make it. People would like, pieces were actually beautiful back then. Anyways. It's like these concepts, though, of like corset or lingerie, as we may, I didn't really get to go into this in the corset, the cultural history of corset, but she obviously read that book. This is a Valerie Steele perspective of like. She quotes Valerie Steele in this article. Yeah. Um, uh, about how we are now using it as outerwear. And, and one big transition was Vivian Westwood, was Jean-Paul Gaultier and the Madonna kind of like wearing what was like basically a bustier or what are they called? Like bustier. A, bustier with a, with a, not gurney, but. Oh, oh. Whatever. Like, not a corset, but a corset um, was like Madonna's like, we all know the pointy tits that which was a bra in the 50s and 60s essentially and how it's like it's reforming the original function and and now just existing as an aesthetic Mm -hmm. so it's it's not being utilized as it was in the past right right and she quotes belgian surrealist renee marguerite where um, who says everything we see hides another thing? We always want to see what is hidden by what we see. Uh, surrealist, am I right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then this also talks about deconstruction and fashion, which one of the big people that started kind of deconstruction fashion in the '90s, I think, was a. This is when a lot of kind of like new fashion concepts were turning away against couture being the only seen form of fashion and people were like well let's think outside the box and that's where you see a lot of stuff happening was like late 80s early 90s and margelina what's his name martin margella yeah who that fucking asshole now designs for yeah and by the way what is his name john galliano Yes, John Galliano, not John, pa- not Jean Paul Gaultier or whatever. Right. We get those two confused because they had J and T's. Anyways, um, I knew he did like from reading Andre Leon Talley's article. I'm now like looking back, being disappointed at Andre for not like calling him for what he is—a total horrific human being. Because yeah. I now have learned a little bit more. Because I was scared to look it up because I just like you had told me it was horrific and no one should be saying those things. And this, and I was just like, well, I, that's all I need to know. Mm-hmm. And then I somehow stumbled upon it, like the actual story of what happens. And you were absolutely correct. It's horrific. And it's like no one should be saying this. And the people that kind of say those things are serial killers. Those are like the behavior behind it. Anyways, I don't know where I'm going on it. It's just like wild that he exists. No one deserves anything. The fact that I saw deconstructiveness and I could not not think of just like an abuser being associated with that. Yeah. But anyways, uh, deconstructionist fashion was Margelina. Margella. Um, yes, he basically was one one of the first to kind of right. provide that as an at least aesthetic. like on the runway. Yeah, accepting aesthetic. And so they talk about right like the the popular Harajuku trend where the dress is taken off the body altogether and pinned on top of the wearer's clothes. And Sarah Camperson or whatever the you know what I'm talking about. She's on. Yeah, um, yeah, Sarah Camp. She did that. She has like a dress like that where it's like a bunch of t-shirts pinned together or something it's like where it's like you're kind of 
and it's surrealist in a way where you're like taking the meaning out of context where it's like it's no longer a shirt now it's a dress it also made me think of nicole mclaughlin that does like the she makes stuff with like like she did this one vest where it was like a bunch of nike shoes made into a vest where it's like yeah basically just like the roland bart's idea of like the sign and the signifier relating to fashion where it's like it still has the meaning of a shoe but it's now not a shoe it's now a vest another yeah. thing where it's like when i explain it i sound like a fucking idiot no but it's like yeah that's the whole thing <laughs> i i remember listening to sorry Europa club and like them interviewing this person on fashion and how like ashley was like claire would be like there's just no point in fashion which I hear her because I think there's pressure to to ha- be fashionable, but um, well, like at- they're also trying to survive in a man's world, aka comedy. Yeah, and Ashley was like, "No, there is something to fashion. I just I'm too dumb to actually know what's going on." And Claire being like, "Can you explain?" And I was like, "If anybody asked me to explain why fashion is valuable." I would go on a rant that I think would be incoherent in the sense that they would be like, you're not convincing me in the yeah, slightest. I still haven't been able to communicate why this podcast is valuable. <laughs> I'm like, it's like, I don't even know what our central thesis is. Not that we need to have seen, one. Not that we ever said we had them or yeah, need to have one. But it's like, yeah, if I was going to tell someone why fashion is important, it's like, I guess Roland Bart is helping me because it's like, because it's language. Yeah, exactly. I kind of that's what I kind of end up saying. I'm like, you're when you dress, you're you're saying something. You're associating with something. And you're speaking, you're expressing to the rest of the world how you want to be seen. And it's either on purpose or not on purpose, but either way it's happening. It's happening. Fashion exists, therefore it's important. Mm-hmm. That and that's all I can really say, like, you know. I love that. We talk about masks as, you know, obscuring the face as they famously do and about how they kind of protect you from surveillance man is least himself when he talks in his own person give him a mask and he will tell you the truth that's oscar wilde's famous quote (laughs) and basically like yeah people are people reveal something maybe more honest or at least just different about themselves when their face is obscured yeah it also talks about the tabby socks oh yeah which is something that we have a long time ago. It talked about like how the tabby socks, which were for the sandals that were like part of the kimono outfit, were essential for wearing the sandals and also like telling you what class you're in, eventually became a boot, which is kind of funny because it's construction now. Workers and pharmacy gardeners, even rickshaw pullers in Japan, also wear like the split toe boots called. Jukatabu tabbies, which then Margelina, Martin Margella. I'll never remember that. <laughs> Margina uh, took uh, and put a hill to it, and then now we have these tabby boots, boots which are impossible to find. Anyways, to buy that are under six hundred dollars. When tabbies in itself are pretty affordable. I don't know what I'm saying there, but they mention it. Yeah, it's shaped to like how clothes clothing shapes the body essentially. Yeah, and so like as we get into the thing, the things on masks, we talk about another theorist, John Baudrillard, um, who was who did like simulacra. That was like he wrote on like the simulacra, yada yada. Did I write anything about him in my notes? I haven't even looked at my notes yet. Um, this is all from the noggin. Straight from the nog, baby. But he 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 had thoughts on makeup. How can one mistake this exceeding of nature for a vulgar camouflaging of the truth? Only falsehoods can alienate the truth, but makeup is not false or else it is falser than falsehood and so recovers a kind of superior innocence. 
it kind of feels like it's like basically saying it feels like he's defending makeup in some way but i can't i can't really understand how to <laughs> explain it it's like it's truth because it's what you want to be or it's truth because it's revealing a truth of society which is that like this is how i think i'm supposed to look yes to me i like men are always like women shouldn't wear makeup on the first day or like whatever because they are like lying to uh have you actually have you heard a man say that before i have i have had some men have explicitly say that about other women and then once i wore makeup and this one guy was just like makeup it's not fair that women can just do that to men and i'm like Excuse me, I know you're trying to compliment me in a really fucked up way right now. You're saying I look completely different and you're attracted to me and you're like mad that makeup exists because I, I don't look like this on all accounts all the time for you. I mean, if it was if it was advantageous for men to look better, they absolutely would wear makeup. It just doesn't advantage them because yeah. we don't give a shit because we know what actually matters, except for when it comes to being tall, which absolutely does not matter. But for some reason, we cannot quit. We cannot quit the It's tall. all we have to hold me and feel like <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Anyways. Yeah. It, there is something just being – wearing the makeup itself isn't a lie. It's actually saying a lot about the culture that we live in. It's a yeah. truth of the culture. It's like we ha- these are the standards that we have to meet to even be seen or heard. Yeah. Yeah, the categorization of appearances as deceptive, frivolous, decadent, or unimportant distractions or distortions of an imagined deeper existence that is beyond mere sensations dates back to Plato, whose allegory of the cave put deceiving surface image shadows in opposition to the real essential truth, the sun. Fucking Plato. So it's basically like arguing that like there isn't a truth that we're obscuring when we wear fashion, when we wear makeup. There's no true body to obscure we're not obscuring any truth like the truth is already obscure because it's a social construct was i right fashion does not have to be seen as a superficial gloss wrapping up a true body or self it can be seen as an active process of bringing things outside an aggrandizement of an identity that is mediated with the social beyond narcissistic posing the bravely fantastical hysterically incomprehensible dressing in harajuku can be seen as a public service that exhibits the marvelous and the mundane embodies fantasy and optimism and reimagines the type of beauty that is culturally admired boom yeah, that is the last paragraph oh, and it's yeah. and it sums it up oh god i want to read more from amelia i, I too i really i want to read this book on mounds i want to have a conversation with her really too i want to read the book on mounds as well should we just like do that and sorry too bad it's not about fashion and culture kind of is though yeah um, we got other books we gotta read too we got a long list we're gonna be reading the biography of the memoir of edward Enninful. what's the difference between memoir and autobiography do you know memoirs are supposed to be like free-flowing impressions of your life and they can be written at any point in your life i think an autobiography is supposed to be more like comprehensive like i feel like memoirs are just a little bit more loosey-goosey yeah they're usually not that good like it can be anything you know? i know i have a i have a preference for biographies over memoirs because oh, yeah. it's through a biased lens that can be ruthless to the protagonist that's actually a real person versus i feel like a lot of autobiographies or like memoirs they they try to explain why 
they're good people sometimes. Not every but not bad memoirs do that. Yeah, you're saying that biographies are more biased or less biased. Oh, they're extremely biased because there's like, oh, a, the writer has determined something about this person, right? And they either admire them or they have. It, it could be dif- difficult. Like, for example. The Vivian Westwood book that we were required, like I, I read pretty, I've re, I've reread it a lot, gone, gone back to it, and I think it's a wonderful book that has been, it was well written, but it is, it is full of editorial flair, you know, and that that's why I like it. Well, I think a good biographer is supposed to be like less biased. Obviously, like everyone's biased, everything is biased, but it's like they're supposed to bring in more nuance than I think Jane Mulvog did. But anyway, this isn't about Jane. It's about Amelia and Harajuku. And yeah, I don't really have any summarizing thoughts that really took a lot out of me in a good way. Yeah, same. I'm exhausted. But yeah, I was so glad that we read this. Me too. And it was like, it felt like the perfect time for it. Just based on all the other stuff we've been reading. And like, it just really pulled a lot of things together. Yeah, we are definitely more prepared to read stuff now in the fashion world because I do think we have a good foundation of understanding and history mm-hmm. leading up to this moment. And it is so rewarding to read something and not be like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah, one thing I would love to hear from you if you made it all this way is like, which of these theories, which of these philosophers would you like to hear more about? Like, there's a lot of their texts that we could really dive into. Right. Do you want to know more about dressing versus dress? Like, let us know or anything. Yeah. Or are you more, you know, about Pierre Bourdieu's like theories on taste and distinction? Or are you just a total groom head now? You want to hear more about more of Amelia Groom's writings? Or do you want to know more about like how photography has shaped mm-hmm. fashion? Mm-hmm. Or about, just more about Harajuku? I could, I've never been like really into Japanese culture, but I could see myself. Oh, yeah. Like there's a lot more. I'd like to look. I'd like, like a woo head or something like that. Wooblies, woobies. Y'all are going to, whoever is this, the thing, like when you admire Japanese culture, oh, there's like a term for it. And I'm sorry that I can't remember it. Um. Well, until next time, I love you. I love you too. Bye.
And while we're on the subject of feedback, I'm just letting you know that half an hour into the episode, we had some sound difficulties that last about half an hour. So just hang tight. It'll be over soon. <laughs>